happening now. We'd like to welcome our viewers from across North America and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room, live coming to you from Missoula, Montana, and I was about to say Oklahoma City, but it's not. It's Matthews, North Carolina, actually. My name is Wes Fryer, and I am the middle school innovations teacher teaching media literacy, introductions to engineering, and robotics this semester at Providence Day School in Charlotte. Joining me as always is the EdTech guru of the North, whose stack of analog books continues to climb week after week. Pretty soon we're not going to be able to see the Montana flag, Jason. Yeah, I know. No kidding. Um, I guess that's just the... That's just the situation when you buy books and you don't have 24 hours a day to read. So uh, how are you tonight, Dr. Fryer? I am good, um, and I am not in a place where the snow is falling. But given what I've seen with weather, uh, I'm thinking it might be a little cold where you are. Yeah, it is a little cold where, where I am. Uh, we had uh, pretty cold temperatures on Sunday Monday of this week. I think it got down to 14 below in Missoula. Uh, that was Monday morning, and it was a little chilly uh, getting to work, but we got to figure it out. But uh, we're back up to, we've had a very strange winter this year. It started very early, and it really hasn't let up, but we'll spend the next two weeks, uh, two to three weeks, um, in temperatures that are closer to um, uh, you know, 30, 35 during the day and, and 20 at night. Did so, you say 14 below Monday? Yeah, 14 below. Yeah, and that's not it, a chill number. That's the straight number. It so. was 65 degrees here on Monday. Yeah. So, yeah, it is now dropped into the 40s. But we're fortunate, uh, you know, a lot of the Midwest uh, relatives and especially around Austin and Texas and then even uh, our daughter Sarah back in Oklahoma City battling ice storms and freezing rain and snow, lots of Lots of fun winter weather. So, yay, we've got Peggy in the chat room. We have Betsy joining us again. And, uh, yes, thank you also, Peggy, for resharing our our show. I, I just got it out 30 minutes early. I'm, I'm going to try to do that a little bit earlier. It's, it, I think it might have helped us get Betsy here. Although you were you were in a, a webinar, you said, with Betsy uh, earlier a couple weeks ago when she joined. So, yes, the storm is headed east. So we're going to – we're supposed to maybe get an inch of rain tomorrow – but our temperatures are going to all stay over the freezing mark and it's the temperatures will drop a little bit this weekend, but the moisture will be, will be gone. So, Hey, now that we've talked weather, Dr. Neifer, what the heck are we going to do here tonight? Besides model my Oklahoma blood Institute, follow your instinct, save lives shirt. Uh, well, uh, the Antic Situation Room is a once-a-week podcast that talks about blood and weather, but also we take a look at all the week's tech news and kind of shoot it through an educational prism in hopes to maybe find something of interest to, uh, 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 well, really anyone listening, but people particularly involved in education. You can find all the links that we cover, whether we get to them uh, uh, during the show or not, at edtechsr.com. And tonight... Uh, we have quite a few links to go through. I imagine that at some point we will jump into the delights that is the AI rabbit hole. But other topics for tonight um, include the tech correction, Apple, Google, Microsoft, of course, artificial intelligence, the tech correction, free speech and censorship, and media literacy and culture wars. Um, and so uh, is there a particular place, Dr. Fryer, you insert a lot of links tonight. Any particular place you'd like to start tonight? Oh... Why don't we just, I didn't, I didn't know what this was labeled correctly, but the free speech expression censorship. Um, let's do two that are a little bit different here, uh, just because I know we're going to get into our, our tech correction and uh, our AI uh, routines that we have. I had not heard of this before. This is a 
German website called Deutschwell. This comes from January 25th, and the headline is um, Indian Police Detain Students Over BBC's Modi Documentary. So the BBC, and I have not seen this documentary, has a film about Prime Minister Modi, um, and basically the government has banned it in the nation of India. And so some students were able to get access to it through YouTube, maybe through a proxy, and um, the government has labeled the film propaganda, uh, and basically these students got detained after a scuffle with police. So if you can imagine, uh, you know, watching a YouTube video with some of your classmates or colleagues from college and, you know, then you get arrested by the police, that that's what hap- is happening in India today. Um, both Twitter and Facebook, well, so both Twitter and YouTube have complied with the Indian government's demands to um, make sure that these links are not available within India. And so... Um, they are asserting that this is colonialist British propaganda, but I guess basically what it does is look back at Modi's political career uh, back in the early 2000s. There were <clears throat> anti-Muslim riots in the province. Uh, I don't know if I'll say this right, Gwarat, where he was the chief minister, and basically I guess he was accused of not not stepping in. Um, so that's an odd one. We don't usually do something about India. Um, any thoughts there, Doctor Neifer? Yeah, just that, I mean, I I don't know, I, I feel like censorship is getting to be a bit of a sticky word in the United States, and, you know, just a reminder that um, um, we, we have very uh, uh, solid free speech laws uh, in, in the United States that uh, really exceed uh, even most Western democracies, but um, I do think that, that uh, what I would say is that it, it is concerning that a you know well the world's largest democracy is 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 uh, engaging in these types of behaviors, but I mean it just it 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 makes the internet that much more interesting and that much more um, I think vital right that it looks like there has been some attempt to um, to work around the ban um, and I would imagine that that if, it, if enough copies gets out then. Um, uh, it really wouldn't really, really would matter because you can't, you know, uh, especially a country as large as India, I would imagine that they don't have a lot of controls like Russia does, for example, to go out to the larger internet, that they would have a difficult time keeping something off of the internet, uh, if enough copies were, were distributed. But yeah, certainly interesting article. And I think, uh, an important issue of the times. And there's one other article under that category, and this was from Ars Technica on January 30th. Decades-old law forms biggest obstacle to nationwide TikTok ban, lawmaker says. And it references something I'd never heard of before called the Berman Amendments. Um, we've been talking about TikTok now for a while. I uh, mentioned that in Oklahoma, where our daughter's attending college at the University of Central Oklahoma, all of the state universities um, were ordered by the governor to block TikTok and not allow uh, any student access. Of course, they can just do that on their own cell phones. Um, that's posed some challenges to, you know, university organizations that had a TikTok channel. Can't use that anymore legally uh, in the state. And there have been a number of other states that have enacted similar kinds of, I think, usually gubernatorial mandated bans. Well, there is this idea that maybe we're going to have a nationwide ban. And it turns out there were Berman amendments passed back in 1977. Um, they were trying to limit the ability of 
you know, folks in the United States to trade with hostile nations. Quote, the plan was to prevent average citizens from assisting U.S. enemies. But the law troubled publishers doing business with book authors and movie makers based on hostile nations. And so the congressman at the time, Howard Berman from California, uh, proposed an amendment in 88, which exempted information and informational materials from the IEEPA. And then in 1994, there was another amendment which specifically exempted electronic media. So this would apparently limit the president's ability to have an executive order um, banning TikTok. Of course, the article points out it doesn't say why Congress can't just pass a different law because these were laws that were passed by Congress. But I don't know. As I see these articles and sort of sniff the political winds, it really does seem like the move is to try and, and block TikTok. And this article says that the CEO of TikTok, which is ByteDance, um, is going to testify before Congress for the first time in March. And I'm sure we'll talk about that. Um, the testimony that we have had previously by representatives of the um, major technology companies, including CEOs, I think really served to more highlight the ignorance of some of our aging politicians than it did to highlight anything new for folks watching uh, the tech industry. Um, but it just does seem that, you know, everybody wants to sort of jump on a TikTok is bad bandwagon. And as as I think I might have mentioned last week or the week before, I think it really comes down, this is just my own analysis, uh, to the new Cold War that we have with China and this idea that, you know, artificial intelligence, as we'll talk about with ChatGPT, is just really accelerating. And so anything that the United States can do that would hamper China, um, I think that's number one. And then number two is the fear over a Chinese company probably beholden, most I think people would probably say, to the Chinese government, being able to shape the information feeds of a ton of people in the United States. So have you, Hal, had a TikTok ban in Montana, Jason? Yeah, so we have a – there's a ban of TikTok on state-owned devices, and then after some negotiation, it also extended to uh, access on state-owned networks, which happens to include the university that I work at. And, um, you know, that doesn't ruin anything for me in particular, because it's not like I was spending time uh, during the day. Oh, and also uh, um, uh, time and effort during during work hours. So in other words, like even if you don't um, – uh, even if you 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 utilize it uh, separately, you're not supposed to be on TikTok during work time. And like we talked about in the past, one of the things that I think is is challenging about that is that I I don't know if I like I I, I get better what the threat is, and I do think it is a bit concerning um, that there isn't really clear data policies on the the behalf of ByteDance, and also and I think you mentioned this a couple weeks back, Wes, that ByteDance is an AI company that they're that's what they, they, they say they, they, they most uh, uh, are engaged in. And so I would assume then that our, any data we feed to TikTok, and remember, you don't have to be a creator or post something to create data for TikTok. In fact, if you are um, uh, swiping uh, on things, if you're sending likes out, if you're leaving messages, if you're creating you know, a larger network of, 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 of what you watch and what you follow, um, certainly it doesn't take much to, to think of sinister ways to use that data, but there might be a bigger point here, which is that it's, it's, it's learning some component of human behavior that, you know, you don't know what's happening with that data. I think that's true of really all the platforms, right? But I think that's something also to, to kind of keep in mind or to be thoughtful about. 
If I am counting correctly, we have 33 articles in the show notes tonight. So we, uh, we will probably not get through all those. Uh, what would you like to talk about next? Well, sure. Let's do some like tech tech stuff. Um, first, um, I want to highlight this article that, um, uh, I had missed last week, but I think it's really important. Uh, this is from Windows Central on January 20th. Uh, there have been a lot of tech layoffs in the last several weeks, uh, impacting, uh, uh, Google's parent company, Alphabet. Uh, uh, Microsoft has laid off several people. Um, I've seen some references to that Google, or I'm sorry, that Apple's not going to have to lay off as much, uh, because of they were much, much more circumspect about hiring uh, during the pandemic, so they won't have to uh, fire as many people as uh, companies scale down as demand has lessened post-pandemic. But uh, apparently, uh, as part of the layoffs, uh, massive Microsoft layoffs, as Windows Central calls it, the virtual mixed reality and HoloLens teams are, are were basically uh, 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 depreciated, and that's actually quite surprising to me because I thought that HoloLens was going to continue to 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 grow, and in fact, we've had articles I think on this podcast that that argue things like uh, the Microsoft was really the only one that seemed to be headed in the right direction when it comes to mixed and and virtual reality. Um, I did do a HoloLens demo at. ISTE, and I'm trying to remember which ISTE it was. I think it was the San, the last San Antonio ISTE, if I remember correctly. But I I spent a, a whole afternoon in in a, um, a, a Microsoft lab uh, looking at demos of things, and they had us uh, uh, with Hololenses uh, looking at uh, museum pieces and and looking at artifacts uh, in in, a, in an interesting and, and three dimensional way. Um, that was mostly a mixed reality piece, but I really did think that Microsoft was going to end up having something viable in the space. And I will say that that I, I still think that Apple's going to end up being a, a major player here with augmented reality. But uh, uh, the bottom line is that. Um, uh, if Microsoft doesn't come up with this technology or if it's not them, I think it's going to have a harder time getting into schools. One of the greatest things about something developed by Microsoft is that they have such a footprint. The same is true as Google that it's going to end. It's going to the, the barrier to entry for schools is much lower as opposed to a third party. We interrupt this response to bring you a Microsoft sponsored chat GPT answer to the question I just posed, how much has the U.S. government and military invested in Microsoft HoloLens and VR technology to date? And this is what ChatGPT says. I'm sorry, I don't have the exact amount of investment by the U.S. government and military in Microsoft HoloLens and VR technology. However, Microsoft HoloLens has received some significant contracts from the U.S. military for its AR technology, such as a $480 million contract with the U.S. Army for the Integrated Visual Augmentation System, IVAS program. U.S. military has shown interest in VR technology for various training and simulation purposes. However, the exact amount of investment by the government in these technologies is not publicly disclosed. Now, I did mention a couple weeks ago uh, when I got back from a trip to Kansas and I had visited with a family friend who is working for the U.S. Army. Uh, he had mentioned the, the discontinuation of a significant fully VR program for soldiers where they're going to wear full headsets and, and all these cameras. Um, and I think we had an article a couple of weeks ago saying that a senator had passed something to say, we're, we're done with that. So this is a really big deal. And one of the fun things that we um, 
you know, try to do here on the EdTech Situation Room is, uh, you know, gaze into our virtual Palantir, if you're a Lord of the Rings fan, and, um, you know, try to predict the future. And it really does look like AR, VR, while there are, and we've got some other articles in the show notes, there are foundational technologies that Apple and Google uh, specifically are investing in, um, which which portend not an end to the technologies, but not the imminent explosion that the uh, you know well-known CEO of Meta, formerly Facebook, uh, you know would would have us think is going to happen you know really really soon. Um, I have an article that is related to this one that I put under Apple, and this is a CNET article from January 31st, and it uh, is headline: "The smartphone shipments are imploding. Is Apple's iPhone next?" And we've actually do have an article, which I don't necessarily know we'll, we'll mention, but the uh, the earnings uh, did come out, and it was down with iPhone sales. But here's what I thought was shocking from this article, because you're right, Jason, we've talked about you know, layoffs in the tech com- in the tech world. Um, but just listen to these statistics if I can find this. Um, analysts, so this is quote, analysts so far don't seem concerned that Apple may be in a similar position as Amazon, which eliminated 18,000 jobs, Microsoft, which laid off 10,000, or Meta and Google, which together laid off an additional 23,000, all told an estimated, this is a, basically a quarter mil, 235,596 people lost their jobs across tech in the past, <clears throat> past year, according to layoffs.fyi, an industry tracker. So a quarter of a million people in 2022 lost their tech jobs. That is really, really stunning. You know, but we have reported this and we've heard, you know, Sundar Pichai and some other folks really forecast that, you know, these these folks are, are so much smart. I mean, they're not smarter than Dr. Knifer. I'm not saying that, but they're definitely way smarter than me. <laughs> they have a lot more access, you know, to, to industry studies and all these kinds of things. And so we've heard Pachai, the CEO of, uh, of Google, or I guess is he Alphabet? Um, we've heard him talk about, anyway, seeing that this was going to happen and that these layoffs are, were happening. So is this going to portend uh, a larger recession in the economy? I don't know. Um, but those are huge numbers of tech folks that are being laid off. And I don't know if that's going to have any direct impact on schools. Um, but I think an overall slowing of the market, you know, generally means, you know, less consumer options, less vibrancy, less innovation, you know, just a general slowdown. So, yeah, very interesting. Um, and I also think too, uh, by the way, there's another Apple article there that's somewhat related to that. Uh, uh, the, uh, there are technical article from January 25th talks about, how Apple's beefing up their smartphone services in a quote unquote silent war against Google. The reason why I think this is hilarious is because, um, uh, you know, when hasn't Apple perceived themselves as being in a war with Google over phones, right? Um, if you uh, go back to the history of, of, of Android, uh, Steve Jobs thought that Android ripped off uh, the iPhone and, in fact, threatened, you know, global, or I'm just not global, the thermal nuclear war over the situation um, of, 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 uh, Android stealing, stealing, stealing um, touch. Yeah. Pin, yeah. Pin, pinch and capacitive yeah. touch and all that. So they're, they're, uh, I thought that's interesting, but, um, you know, I will say, you know, I, 
uh, it used to be more or less a phone every two years guy, but that was in part due to the fact that I was getting a carrier subsidy. I've been a lot more careful about that. I get more updated phones if and only if I have an opportunity to um, uh, to buy a cheaper one. Like a, when I was uh, had a four or five year stretch with with either used or cheap Android phones, that was a, a, a big deal in my strategy. But um, yeah, I just, I, I'm pretty sure that part of what's driving this larger phone situation is that people just don't feel the need to spend $1,300 every um, other year on a phone. And in fact, most of the, I don't know how you put this, civilians, normal people, the non-nerds, uh, however you want to put them. Um, uh, Those you know, not subscribing currently to the EdTech situation. Right, right. yeah. So, uh, so in other words, not, you know, people not in our audience that the um, the bottom line is that most people I know are using very old phones um, uh, and don't upgrade all that often. And the upgrade is kind of a big deal or they wait for a deal to do it. So and it's also to do with the lockdowns in China and the impact that that's had on factory production, um, not yeah. just for Apple, but for other companies. Uh, Peggy has a, a comment as far as what side loaded apps are. And so I'll just go ahead and do that article. Um, this is Ars Technica from today. On February 1st, the headline apps, Apple should be required to let iPhone users sideload apps, Biden administration says. And I actually do have a, a an ed tech connection to this. So what does sideload mean? It means an alternative app store. Uh, in the past, that has meant jailbreaking your iPhone, uh, which Apple you know, said was illegal and voided your warranty and, and, and was horrible. Um, we've seen Europe passed some different legislation that seems to suggest they're going to force an alternative app store. Um, we've had the lawsuit, which is kind of, in my under, you know, limited understanding, <clears throat> between the Fortnite uh, owner, and you'll have to, somebody will have to help me with that, with that company. But anyway, the, the company selling Fortnite, you know, not wanting to just give Apple 30%, so wanting to have subscriptions and things happen, you know, outside the app. Um, you know, if people can sideload apps, there's the possibility of alternative app stores. And here's the real connection for students as well as for, for families and everybody. And that's going to be safety as far as installing stuff. You yeah. know, if you would jailbreak your device, you were really putting yourself and your device at risk of malware, a greater risk than you had if you were straight up just using the app store. That's one of the things that Apple, Tim Cook and, and other Apple representatives continue to harp on with all this is we're protecting the public. We're protecting iOS users. And I think that's a very, you know, legitimate claim. Um, at the same time, obviously, there, I well, maybe this isn't obvious, but I think that there is some legitimacy to the claim that, you know, Apple has a, a kind of a stranglehold over developers and they've got a huge amount of market power because of the way that they've architected their system. Now, to Apple's defense, they designed the system. They invented the modern smartphone and they, you know, um, you know, have invested and continue to invest a lot in the, uh, the platform, um, but again, looking at the tea leaves of this, looking at what Europe has done, it really does seem that we're probably going to see some alternative app stores happen probably yeah. in 2023. And that's going to be important from a safety standpoint. You know, it's it's not a stretch to think that some of the, the young students, the preteens and teens in our classrooms might be even more likely than older aging parents to install extra apps and give things a try. And while that might, 
bring new function and cheaper gaming and other benefits, uh, there are some real risks to sideloading apps. So I think it's important to have those conversations with uh, really everyone that, you know, involve Internet safety, whether it's installing extensions, apps, you know, anything. One of the benefits of the modern mobile app based, you know, uh, operating system architecture has been, you know, the fact that you you don't have you know shareware and freeware and the opportunity we've 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 seen a maturing of operating systems to where you're having to put your password in a lot more frequently and sometimes it's irritating right in the latest version of iOS even when you're pasting into an app you know it's popping up do you allow paste do you allow paste I I run into that with Wakelet all the time uh, and also my um, my uh, recipe, my Paprika is my favorite, you know, recipe app on the iPhone. So anyway, I think that there's an internet safety conversation to have. Are you going to be excited to sideload apps, Jason? And is this going to revolutionize your computing experience on your smartphone? You know, Wes, the, the thing I keep thinking about here is that for all the folks that are running around talking about how, you know, and I, and I, I don't, I'm not a developer, so I don't know what those economics look like. And I, I do think the one third, the 25 percent, whatever this amount is, seems pretty stiff uh, for for what you're getting in return as a developer. But, you know, there there really isn't such a thing on, on, on an iPhone as a virus or malware. Right. You can sometimes get something weird from the Web. Right. That I've, I've seen. I've gone to, to, to click on a link before that you know, took me to a website that went full screen and told me, you have a virus on your phone, click here to do da-da-da-da-da-da-da. So that's that's delivered by the web, right? So it's kind of a different thing. But, um, you know, maybe when I was younger, um, uh, I, I would have done something there, but I don't, you know, there would have to be a pretty persuasive and, and secure marketplace uh, for apps for me to go in that direction, to try an alternative app store, I have to trust it an awful lot. And I just don't see that being a real, a, 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 you know, a real alternative to the app store. And maybe I'm just getting, you know, older and, 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 and less patient with that, right? But the, the bottom line is, is I, you know, there has to be a middle ground between developers get charged too much or Apple's, you know, taking too much profit and just, you know, swinging the doors open completely. Because if anything, I feel like the computer manufacturers, maybe for economics, but I think also largely for security reasons, are moving towards more of the lockdown mode. And um, I think that I would probably stick with with the App Store on on my um, uh, uh, Apple portable devices. Great comments and, and feedback and questions in the chat room. So thank you, Betsy, for the reminder. Uh, yes, the uh, creator of Fortnite is Epic Games. And in fact, in our show notes, if you search for Epic or Epic Games, you'll find a number of those articles, which have seemed to kind of go both ways. Some of them have supported Apple. Some of them have supported Epic. Um, Peggy asks, so if you would have to jailbreak your phone in order to install apps, not in the App Store. And yes, that is correct. That's what a, a jailbreak has been. And not to be too transparent, but in the late 2010s, uh, some kind of notorious guest blogger named Sherman Nicodemus, who had somehow exclusive access at times to my iPhone, uh, actually for two reasons, uh, I jailbroke that phone, rumor had it, and blogged about it on my blog. Um, it was because of the need to mirror the phone for professional development right. in workshops. It was way before AirPlay, before Apple TV. There was no way to do that. And, and 
my understanding was it wasn't good enough for Apple to want to do that. That had to do with processor and video, you know, uh, RAM and, and all those kinds of things. And then the other function was tethering because this was before yeah. there was any legal tethering. In fact, I, I mentioned, I think last week or the week before this, um, you know, uh, class action lawsuit that AT&T is, is having to, you know, pay up on. Um, and it, that had to do with the claims of unlimited, but you know, this prohibition, it's almost like a right to repair sort of thing. Well, you can buy this tractor, but you can't repair it. You know, you could have this phone, but you can't install anything from another unauthorized person. And you certainly can't tether your device to use your laptop to get on the cellular network. And, you know, now that's very common with, uh, I think, with most cell cellular plans. So uh, Betsy poses a good question here. She says, I wonder what the risk is for the ecosystem, talking about the, the mobile app ecosystems. If others are doing this, does it release risk into the larger system, even for those not doing it? I mean, I certainly would say that it's going to release dynamics where when there are more cases of malware and people are needing to, to be more careful, perhaps people are going to be less hesitant to try different apps and it's just going to overall maybe increase some fear on the part of consumers. What, what do you think about that, Jason? Is there, are there broader risks uh, to the ecosystem of this? Um, you, well, yeah. I, I, scam apps is an example of this, right? Like I, I think that, that uh, this has happened on Android before that you could, and this is, these are kids, right? That, that are largely doing this, that, um, you know, they alter, they download an alternative app store. Most of the apps in there are fake and it steals credentials and creates, I mean, there's all sorts of security pieces. Some of them do wallpapers and other yeah. kinds of things. And there's UI or which, you know, um, for, for the, the visual interface, um, anyway, that, that they're going to tweak, but yeah, there, my impression has been rampant with malware and, yeah. and bad actor created software. And I think that decreases overall trust and it, 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 it increases FUD, fear, uncertainty, and doubt. And, um, you know, I think with all the progress that Google has made in the last couple of years to provide an experience to where the you, you have to choose to unlock your, your, your Google phone or your, your Android phone. And, you know, there's some reasons to do that. Um, I'm not saying that there's not, but I... I I, I, I do think tech needs regulation. I'm not sure if this is what I, what I'm particularly looking for, right? If you want to have some conversations about, um, capping, uh, as an example, capping, uh, uh, the percentage that the developers can get charged, that seems like an awfully bizarre, very strict way of going about this, but I would be more supportive of that than saying that, that, that you have to be able to install on anything. And there's also a point of which too, that I wonder if there's, there's some limitation ultimately, right? Like why can't I install my own apps on my really crappy uh, dashboard experience in my car, which is now um, uh, uh, basically not functional. I have a, t a 2014 Ford Escape um, that was actually the first new car I've ever purchased. Uh, I did it in my, my late, my late thirties. Um, but, um, the, uh, uh, no early forties, as a matter of fact, I'm, I'm, I'm screwing up my own age, but I did it in my early forties and, um, I particularly picked a model because it had a nice, uh, on-screen experience replacing my former car, which literally had a tape player in it. And, uh, it, it's now basically worthless because it was too, too early before CarPlay or, uh, Android Auto. 
and uh, the nice big screen, none of it functions anymore because they've depreciated all of it because there's no APIs left, so it can't go on the internet and do all the cool things it was supposed to be able to do. Why can't I install something on that, right? Like that, you know, I, I think we're picking fights here that I, I just don't think are that defendable. Aftermarket, Jason. We, we have a 2007 Sequoia still going strong, and I've got an aftermarket uh, I think it's Pioneer uh, system um, with with AirPlay, and yeah. the nice thing is the the iPhone updates and AirPlay is updated. So I would would highly you know recommend that. Yeah. Uh, Betsy says new apps plus AI coding is yikes, and it is. I think maybe Great I mentioned point. my experience with JavaScript. I still have it. I don't know. I'm not blogging that often, uh, but um, I had an incredible experience week before last, spending three plus hours. Uh, writing the code in JavaScript, <laughs> which I do not know, but thanks to chat GPT, I, uh, I was actually making some code, do some stuff that was working. Uh, so yeah. it is, it's going to be interesting to see, but I kind of think that just like, well, we've certainly had privacy law and Europe is leading the way. I think, dare I say this? I think Europe's representative democracies are doing a better job this at this point uh, addressing the issues of the tech correction specifically and, and more broadly, some other issues as well. So are we going to see these changes in the United States? I don't know, but we have privacy law in, in Europe and we certainly have some moves in European government to force Apple to open up the ecosystem. And if, and if Apple opens it up in Europe, it's hard to imagine them not opening it up in the United States. Um, I suppose that's possible, but, but a little doubtful. Okay, well, one other quick article to share. This one seems uh, kind of uh, like boring in comparison to the others. Um, why don't you talk about that um, um, that Google article? Okay, so 9to5Google reports today that uh, Google says that Lens and Maps Live view um, are a prelude to its long-term vision for augmented reality. And you know, last week, and then we just talked a little bit about HoloLens being killed by Microsoft. You know, the tea leaves seem to indicate that, you know, no dramatic, exciting things coming, like from Apple, probably no glasses, and, you know, that, that we're not going to see just this incredible explosion of virtual reality and, and augmented reality technologies this year in 2023. Uh, but like Apple, laying the foundation for different kinds of 3D, um, you know, software I think hardware kits and I don't know if they're called APIs, but the stuff that you know, developers need to be able to have and access in order to create these very rich AR and VR experiences. Google's doing the same thing with its lens and its map view live. And so um, there was an event, I guess, with Samsung um, and um, they were talking about how, quote, we're working. This is Lockheimer, who I think is with Samsung, maybe. Um, quote, we're working towards a new generation of computing enabled by immersive experiences across brand new form factors that will further elevate what you can do with Google. All this is incredibly exciting from the hardware and core technological capabilities to the apps and services cannot see what we build together. And so, um, nine to five is, is saying that these comments are undoubtedly the most significant and detailed since the end of Google IO 2022 when Sundar Pichai uh, previewed translation glasses. And, you know, those IO uh, demos of language translation really were exciting and, and pretty amazing. So I'm glad that, that these things are moving forward. Um, 
are these coming to a classroom near you? No, but the language translation that's in any browser is better than ever. Uh, that's AI driven. Um, but I don't know that we're going to have the next generation Google Glass and, and Apple's version of that, you know, coming soon. But the technologies continue uh, to march forward. And But at, at this point, I think it's still the promise of a transformative technology. And we haven't, people are kind of waiting for Apple, I think, to release the the next big thing, you know, that revolution, revolutionizes it all. We might be surprised this year, but it doesn't seem like those those are coming. But the tech, the underlying technologies are continuing to mature and develop. There we go. Okay. Well, uh, I have one. I have one that's a little bit different. Um, okay. Oh. But it's a. I have it under media literacy. The, the, so this will be a bit political. Uh, Robert Reich, former labor um, secretary under uh, President Obama. Uh, writes a substack, and this has to do with the price of eggs. I don't know but if you've noticed how expensive eggs are, Jason, in Montana. Yeah, uh, so uh, this was a this was his post on January 28th, and it's entitled "When Fox Entered the Hen House and Tried to Make Me into a Souffle." Um, basically, he explains that uh, well. Apparently, the reason why eggs are so expensive is that he calls it corporate greed. But uh, with inflation and things like that, there are some companies that have tremendous power over the nationwide cost and distribution of uh, eggs. Uh, there's a letter that he cites in here from a consumer advocacy group called Farm Action. Um, and they're saying that, you know, this the real corporate is this 138% hike in the price of a carton of eggs. It's a cohesive sch- scheme among industry leaders. But it talks about how anytime the words corporate greed are spoken, that Rupert Murdoch, who owns Fox News, you know, really sees that as an absolute, um, I don't know if you'd call that a dog whistle. I think that context may be different. But basically, they go after whoever dares to say, you know, corporate greed. Um, it's a fascinating article. And I, and I think huh, it's so tough to talk about these things in school and, and, and sometimes out of school as well. We do need to talk about bias in media and we need to try to encourage media literacy. I think that certainly this is an admittedly, you know, progressive leaning article because Robert Reich is a, a Democrat and a, and a progressive leaning guy who's criticizing Fox News. But it's pretty fascinating uh, because of the widespread nature of how expensive eggs are and people are wondering why are eggs so expensive um, and the way in which this is being portrayed in the media. I, I just really found that to be a fascinating article. So are we as classroom teachers going to be able to talk about this tomorrow with our students? I'm not in middle school. And even if I was teaching high school, I think I would tread very carefully when it comes to this because, you know, we have students as well as families that kind of just line up, you know, on different sides of, of literally the aisle when it comes to, um, you know, different news agencies and things like that. But I think it's worthwhile to discuss issues like inflation, the economy, why are eggs so expensive? And and certainly this could be one view that would be discussed. So you don't you can just let that one lie if you want. <laughs> I will. <laughs> okay. That's fine. That's fine. Where would you like to go next? Well, um, we got about twenty minutes or so. Let's 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 do some AI news because it's uh you know it's a whole thing. Um, first I want to announce a couple of quick pieces of breaking news. The first one is. Uh, we talked a couple weeks ago about GPT-0, which is a startup that was using AI to detect AI. And they released a new version, I think it was on Monday or Tuesday, but it is uh, 
next level better than um, the its its first version, which gave you some statistics to consider and uh, didn't really explain what the statistics meant and didn't really make an evaluative judgment. Well, now GPT-0 uh, is uh, much better. Uh, you, t you put in 250 characters or better, and it uh, does still have its, its metrics, which I don't fully understand. Um, I've read through them. I can wrap my brain around it just a little tiny bit, but not epically yet. So, um, but it, it tells you, uh, yep, I think this was written by a human. Yep, I think this was written by AI or it's some mix of both. And it actually highlights the phrases that it believes uh, were AI generated. And I did put it through some testing this week. Um, uh, 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 mostly of, of my writing versus what I've generated with ChatGPT, and it was pretty darn accurate and did an excellent job of, of highlighting that. Um, I still don't think this is a, this doesn't answer any questions yet, and I do think that uh, um, you know we're uh, uh, we, we've got a lot of, of stuff to do here, right? But the bottom line is is that this particular tool is is pretty solid. Okay, there's some really funny things about this. Number one, the subtitle for chat for GPT Zero is Humans Deserve the Truth. Okay, one of the big issues with Chat GPT and generative AI text tools like this is that they are assimilating a vast number of documents and sometimes they're not accurate. And you know, we cannot have a high level of of certainty about the truth of what they're claiming. I don't think chat GPT zero can either. I just tried it with a portion of, of the example that I read earlier in the show about Microsoft HoloLens. And it concludes your text is likely to be written entirely by AI, but like what is truth? And so I think that's kind of interesting that they're using yeah. that. Um, you know, a few good men, Jack Nicholson, you can't handle the truth. Um, they're also inventing these words, right? So under stats, the av this is the rating that I get. Uh, my average perplexity score is 28.000. A document's perplexity is the measurement of the randomness of the text. And then the burstiness score, which is 9 and 539 thousandths, a document's burstiness is a measurement of the variation in perplexity. <laughs> and so... Man, I think that uh, Neil Postman would have a field day, you know, with these invented words talking about technopoly and, you know, let's let's bow down to our, our scientific and technological overlords. Um, because obviously this is responding to a lot of, of AI panic that people are having. And, hey, maybe this, uh, you know, college coder and the team that that he's evidently assembling is going to be able to, you know, really cash in and do great with this. But, uh, yeah, there's invented words here, uh, claims about words like truth that I don't think are, are, are defined at all and that we really get at at all with this tool. And so, um, anyway, there's a lot to interrogate here. But hey, I'm glad. No, I didn't, I didn't realize that a new version of this, um, had been written. And for the record, I, I'm not, I haven't done this yet, but well, actually I did. I did ask ChatGPT to write a um, obituary for my mother. We're going to have a, a memorial service for her here in February. Um, and I, I didn't feed it a lot of information prior to getting that, but I'm, I'm actually going to do that and probably then modify what it gives me. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know. We'll see. But um, 
glad to know this is here. There's a lot to, to take in and possibly interrogate. Sorry to have such a long response to that, but wow. Well, um, uh, the other breaking news, uh, because I, I think it's also related to the evolution of tools, this was just announced a couple hours ago, but OpenAI has announced that ChatGPT will have a plus edition at $20 a month, which there had been some rumors a couple weeks back that the professional version of this would be uh, $40 a month. I think it's worth either one, uh, to be honest, um, with the amount that I'm starting to use this, just the rewriting alone. But you'll remember that, you know, all the tools are available now in beta. This is never going to be something that is going to be, you know, 100% free all the time in all circumstances. And, in fact, I noticed there was a new version of ChatGPT released on Monday. It was the, the January 30th update, not not version 4, which is still a couple months off, but a, a new update for 3.5. And for several hours, uh, it was almost impossible to get anything generated and sent back to you because people were using it. And you'll cut in front of the line. Um, when you're a plus user. So, um, you know, I've, I've paid a lot more per month for a lot less functionality. So um, I'm, I'm going to be a customer of this, but that that price is now available. I know, Wes, that uh, you're also you know, mindful of subscriptions. Does that number give you pause? Would you be in the market for a $20 chat GPT access? Yep. <laughs> I, <laughs> yep. <laughs> I think that uh, 20 is certainly a lot better than 40 you know, when I look at subscriptions and things like that, if I'm paying a subscription, I, I'm going to, I'm probably going to use it a lot more. Now, is that true of my yeah. gym membership right now that I'm about to cancel? No. Um, but yeah, there's a, if you're, if you think about that and you're aware of it, I think, you know, you're going to use it more when you're paying for it. So uh, today really is kind of an interesting time since they are in open beta. Um, we potentially could have way more students using it than we will once it moves into some kind of a paid status. Um, so it, it's just interesting. I could see them maybe cutting off the responses maybe for the free version. And then if you wanted to get more robust or maybe the number of, t of uh, iterations that you get to do are limited, it, it's going to be fascinating. But this technology is also going to be integrated undoubtedly into the Microsoft Bing search engine. Um, there's another article I don't know if we'll get to, but it, I, and we talked about some of this last week that, you know, there's folks at Google that are uh, very concerned because, no, this is not a search engine. And I've seen some good explanation about that. But a lot of times when you go to Google, you're not necessarily wanting a bunch of search results that you got to filter through. You'd like an answer. And if you have a tool that can give you an answer that works and that is good enough for your purposes, or maybe it's better than what you expected, um, that's going to be a big deal. Well, and I want to talk one more quick thing about, uh, and I, I need to find that this was on the uh, uh, TikTok app. Uh, this I watched this a couple of days ago, and I, I saved the video, I think, so I'll be able to find it again. But a doctor, uh, I think an ER doctor posted on on uh, TikTok about using ChatGPT to, uh, uh, to try to diagnose um, someone that had presented themselves with certain symptoms in the ER. And... Um, I won't go into too many details um, about it, uh, uh, but the, what he was really impressed with was that it presented this differential diagnosis that wouldn't have been the mainstream diagnosis, but was correct for an awful lot of people. And the secondary or alternative diagnosis gets missed quite a bit. And so he was really impressed by that. He said, I wasn't expecting it to be so accurate or, or provide such an interesting alternative answer. But he then said, 
that he asked for a citation and it presented a citation to him from like the the journal, European Journal of Internal Medicine and had author names and it was the 2017 edition two or whatever that, that looked like. And he's like, wow, that's really impressive. So he went and looked it up and it was completely made up. It was, it wasn't, um, uh, it, the authors were made up. The title was made up. It was in the format of a citation. They'll call that a hallucination of the generative yeah. AI. And, um, wow. and, and the point he was making was that, listen, it's, um, uh, I, I, it was so certain. It wasn't telling you, you know, check this, or I don't know if I got this right or not, which I know ChatGPT actually does that quite a bit. Is It lets you know that, you know, uh, for example, with health information, you shouldn't, you should go see a doctor if you think you have any of these things. But that's where I, I you know, I, I, I will never be the person that says that we should ignore this or, or ban it or, uh, you know, we have to figure out a way to embrace this in our broader structure of education. But wow, that that really diminishes the amount of trust I would have for something. And, you know, I did report on this, you know, several weeks ago when we started talking about this issue. I did type some paragraphs in for my dissertation and had it generate additional paragraphs uh, based on that. This is from uh, Lex.Page. And the generated paragraphs were pretty good, but they had citations that were fake in it. They looked like real citations, but they weren't. So this will be something to investigate and talk about with colleagues and with students as well. Um, incidentally, I was invited today to be on a podcast panel for our school's official podcast talking about chat GPT and generative AI technologies. So that's going to be kind of cool. Um, wow. The fact that, okay, this is based a lot on language models, right? And yeah. so language translation, but, but see, now we're going for truth. Now we're going for medical diagnoses. Now, you know, it's like, we're all jumping in to say, okay, is this the singularity? Do we have artificial general intelligence yet? And we don't. And those kinds of examples, anyway, I mean, it's, there's a playfulness with this as well, right? Where probably everybody who, who is taking some time to use the tool is, is exploring and, and trying to probe boundaries. But I think it is really important that we highlight the limitations and, yeah, to what degree is somebody going to going to make a really life-changing decision, you know, based on this advice which may include you know, hallucinated invented sources. Yeah. And there's no way to know. Um I will tell you one other quick thing about my own experimentations with this. Well, I've had a lot of them in the last week or so, but um I uh, uh started asking ChatGPT about me. Like I started asking, um, you know, what they used to call it, ego searching on Google or, or, or some, something along those Your lines. Your digital footprint search. Yeah. yeah. Well, there was a, there was a, a term for this a long time ago. And I'm surprised I forgot it because I used to talk about it a lot when I gave trades to teachers. But, um, I, I ego chatted with ChatGPT and, um, it was really funny because for the first time ever it said, well, I can search the internet for that. Do you want me to search the internet? So I said, yes. And then it errored out. I don't think it actually was programmed to, to, to do that. I think that people started saying things to it like, well, why don't you search the Internet for that? Or I would have liked an Internet search here or something along those lines. I'm kind of treating it like a Siri or uh, uh, I'm sorry, um, uh, I use the, the S word, but um, 
the, uh, uh, the, all the virtual personal assistants that existed. And it, it, of course, didn't bring me any results. It also told me when I tried to ego search later, there were just too many Jason Knifers and they would need more information. So, of course, that's not true either. But that language model thing is really important because it's not a search engine, right? And, you know, you talk about uh, digital literacy, just having students understand the difference between a search engine and uh, a, a, a language model um, I think is, is pretty darn important. If it's broadly available, though, that won't necessarily stop people from using it in the way yep. they want to use it. By the way, ChatGPT answers the question, Jason, and yes, indeed, it is called an ego search or ego surfing. <laughs> there you go. So, Well, maybe I that's a hallucination on the part of ChatGPT. Who knows? Yep. Okay. Uh, let's see. Do you want? Were there any tech correction? Well, I'll do this quick one about AI. Uh, this is interesting. Defense News, January 31st, AI-powered surveillance sought for U.S. Central Command. One of the things that we're hearing about AI and just algorithms and automation in general, right, is this is going to lead to to losses of jobs. Um, I don't know that a ton of the job losses in Silicon Valley right now are due to this. I think it has to do more, like you said, with, you know, inflated hiring during the pandemic and, you know, economic slowing and, and, and other kinds of economic factors. But um, the U.S. government wants to have eyes in the sky to watch all kinds of things. Specifically, U.S. Central Command is the Middle East and Southwest Asia. And uh, so according to this article, uh, the Air Force wants to install these always-on surveillance tools fueled by artificial intelligence and other advanced computing technology um, at sites overseen by Central Command. One of the things it mentions is Al-Udid Air Base. Now, I bet that there's a lot of folks that have absolutely no clue where this is. It is in Qatar, and I had a chance to be there in Qatar for a middle school conference about, I think, six years ago, and my mind was kind of blown. I, I wasn't on the base, but I was in Qatar, and I was very close to it, and I gained a lot more information about how vast, you know, that it is. So basically, rather than having human beings uh, watching all of these locations, they want AI to do that, much in the same way that my Google Nest, you know, watches outside our house and tells me if there's an animal or if there's a person. And if there's a face that's unknown to it, um, you know, it's able to do that with, with that technology. So the Air Force has released some uh, quotes or some requests for proposals, I guess. Um, and it says this quote, the RFP says this artificial intelligence system would replace the need for in-person monitoring and reduce up to 75 percent of the of those billets. That's human assignments, enabling U.S. Air Force resources and force protection assets to be employed against higher priorities. So, again, an example of the augmented world that we are in today and that we're moving into where it won't be a complete replacement of humanity, but it's going to be an augmentation of capabilities. And I thought that was kind of an eye opening AI related article. Super interesting. Um, I will do one other quick one here uh, related to just kind of its use in the classroom. Um, uh, Stanford Daily reported on January 22nd that uh, scores of Stanford students admitted using ChatGPT on final exams. And uh, their, their definition of score was smaller than I would have assumed. I think it's like, like, like 18% or 22%, I'm sorry, 17% of Stanford students said, I don't know if that, that, that is scores, certainly a large, I number. think a score is 20, isn't it? Like, don't you need to have multiple? Yeah, something like that. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. That, about yeah. That, if you're yeah. going to do that, but I mean, the fact that one in five are nearly one in five, uh, use chat GPT on any fall quarter final assignments or exams, 
I think is 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 pretty telling. And you know, this is not a this is not a six month from now uh, thing we need to be talking about. It's a right now thing we need to be talking with. Um, and then also uh, uh, an interesting article from MC News on January twenty fourth that in what they were calling research, um, a, a Wharton School professor. Uh, 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 gave an MBA exam to, to ChatGPT, and um, the 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 Penn professor said that ChatGPT was able to to pass it at a B minus or B on the exam itself. And the bot score it quoted shows its remarkable ability to automate some of the skills of highly compensated knowledge workers in general, and specifically knowledge workers in the jobs held by MBA graduates, including analysts, manager, managers, and consultants. And again, if that's not a, a, a stunning, uh, you know, stuff is coming here, I think that's a, 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 a good sign of it. I predict we're going to see academic studies soon where you're going to have some blind tests where folks are not going to know who the author is and we're going to, they're going to be evaluated. And so we'll have some, some metrics on that. Of course, if they wait for that typical academic publishing cycle, chat GPT is going to be infinitely better by the time, you know, the article sees the, the light of day. I thought that Stanford Daily article was fascinating for the graph under chat GPT honor code opinions. Um, quote, do you think that chat GPT, that using chat GPT is a violation of the academic honor code? About 30% said yes, if used for more than just ideas. About a quarter said yes, if used at all. About a fifth said yes, if submitted with no edits. And then 13% said no, and 13% were unsure. That's a fascinating question. Um, and I think that it's going to be a good question to consider as a teacher, as a professor or instructor, Will it matter if students use ChatGPT? Will you be able to craft assessments for student learning and, and skill demonstration that are more performative and more authentic in such a way that whether they use ChatGPT or not, they're going to have to demonstrate knowledge and skills and, and capacity? Um, I, I don't know, man. I'm, and I'm thinking about debate too, right? It's going to be interesting. Um, the intersection with technology. Can, let's just go a little bit beyond. I want to, I want to at least mention th these two other articles that are pretty, um, anyway, I'm not, we won't talk. I won't, I'll try not to comment too long on them. BGR, <laughs> January 30th. Uh, Gmail creator says chat GPT quote might destroy Google within two years. Now there are, like we've said earlier, the, you know, it's not a search engine and, but that doesn't stop people from using it as one. Um, and the fact that a, the Gmail creator is, is seeing that it poses this huge threat. Um, you know, Google has, I think we talked about last week, done some pretty major assignment, re, reassignments, you know, within its teams. Um, this is a huge thing just culturally, uh, and certainly within Silicon Valley, but, but in terms of education as well. And then the last one I think I'll mention, oh shoot, these are all so good. Uh, Netflix stirs, uh, fears using AI assisted background art in a short anime film. So this idea that, hey, generative AI will not only be able to create static images, which may, uh, sort of preview of a geek of the week that's coming soon from a, a, a friend uh, that, you know, um, but also, you know, full blown animations. And so Netflix actually did, they cited the labor shortage and they kicked a hornet's nest according to the subtitle by making an AI assisted three minute short. But again, I think that portends the future. Um, and then this one from the observer, um, 
from January 20th, the AI ethics war will make the content moderation debate look like a picnic. The ethics behind, you know, how chatbots address political issues, addressing intellectual property issues, um, addressing things like voice emulators and, and whether, you know, people should be able to emulate voices without permission, uh, public um, officials and uh, celebrities. The ethics of this are absolutely fascinating. And we're only beginning to see the pot being stirred. Geeks of the week, sir. Well, Dr. Fryer, I have one to share that is actually an AI tool. Um, I had been kind of disappointed about uh, a lot of the kind of free generative AI apps that, that existed. And then I figured out that's because I wasn't utilizing the, the, the super uh, popular ones that, that, that seem to have the most development going into. So it's, it's called MidJourney at midjourney.com. And there's a free version of it. I am, I did pay for one month of a pro account uh, because I was tired of waiting around for the apps. It's got a really bizarre interface because you have to do all the interaction with Midjourney through Discord, the chat platform. So there is no way to just go to Midjourney and do something. You have to have a Discord account, and then you're actually talking to the Discord bot, uh, which uh, I have on the background the last couple of days. But uh, if you're wondering, you know, how people were able to do things like uh, create children's books, uh, we talked about that several weeks ago. The guy that created children's books written by AI and then images um, uh, uh, generated and they looked okay. They were uh, good enough to publish. Uh, that is Midjourney does that. So Midjourney.com. And you, sir. Okay. Uh, I'll overshare, but I'll try to go fast. Uh, Top Gun Maverick. Um, I teach Lego robotics and they completely did the trailer for Top Gun Maverick with Legos. So if you know anyone who likes Legos, uh, that's kind of fun. Uh, Archive Today. Um, this is a really a new one to me. If you want to create a backup of something like a Twitter moment, but really any website, uh, yes, the Internet Archive can do that, but you can create one using this Archive Today. Now, this web, they've got multiple versions, and this one is called Archive PH. Uh, but shout out to uh, my friend Ryan in Ryan Collins in Chicago, in uh, Ohio, uh, who I actually met via Twitter and then got to to meet at their conference a number of years ago. Uh, I posted this on Mastodon and got this as a suggestion. So there is the archive of one of my Twitter moments. I was using Twitter moments for quite a while instead of blog posts to basically aggregate a whole bunch of tweets from a conference. And mm -hmm. if I'm going to ditch Twitter, you know, I want to, I don't want to, I don't want to ditch my, my Twitter moments. And then finally, my wife and I, Shelly, have launched a new podcast and it's called Wes and Shelly Share. So uh, we are going to share about life. Healthy life habits, parenting, marriage, navigating the opportunities and challenges of the empty nest. And I see that I need to update that description because outdoor adventures is supposed to be number one. So 30 minute shows we're doing on Sunday coming to a podcatcher near you. Jason, where can folks find you when you are not being held over the hour on a Wednesday night? Well, um, I'm still on Twitter, Tech Savvy Teach. Um, I've been actually enjoying Twitter a little more lately. I don't think it has anything to do with the new ownership. I just think that I've found some new uh, pieces there. I'm also working hard to kind of reestablish a lot of those connections on Mastodon, knife, N-E-I-F, at Mastodon.cloud. And I am on Mastodon as well as Twitter still, mostly interacting on Mastodon, but a little bit on Twitter. You can find all my links at westfriar.com slash after. 
And uh, Peggy is sharing a Geek of the Week there as well, uh, that uh, Jackie Gernstein has a great article on ChatGPT at usergeneratededucation.wordpress.com. So this has been the EdTech Situation Room. We are a weekly podcast coming to you from North Carolina and Montana. You can find us on Facebook and YouTube, but we tend to update uh, Twitter. I guess we do Facebook as well when we have a show postponement or anything changing with the show. You can access all of our show notes at edtechsr.com slash links. And we'd also encourage you to check out our Substack, which we send out that not only includes the links which we talked about, uh, but, you know, we had 33 to talk about, and I bet we did about half of them today. So you can uh, access those on our Google Doc, but you can also find those on our Substack. So we want to thank both Peggy um, as well as um, Betsy for joining us live and encourage any of you who are able to join us live to do so. Until next time, stay savvy, stay safe, and keep playing with ChatGPT and let us know what you discover because I do think and I think Jason would agree as well, this is going to continue to be a major, major changer of our learning and education landscape in the year to come. Have a great night.